Coffee with George Kokolas and Virginia Dooley. So welcome to another episode of Teachers Coffee. Gina, it, apparently I think I have lost track. Is that is this is this number nine? I think episode yes, nine. Yeah, you're you're on track. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> uh, you never lose count. Hello to everyone joining us for yet another episode of Teachers Coffee. Um, and today we're traveling to mm. another kind of exotic. I've heard it's very hot today as well country um which is drumroll mozambique mozambique <laughs> yeah and, there you go and i would say the 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 phrase kind of is is probably an understatement because i've been there and i can confirm it's a very exotic country and by the way i need to say that this might be a wonderful very original christmas destination because i think uh, not many of us in the Northern Hemisphere, we have the chance to have Christmas by by the sun, by the beach, you know, by the waves. And, um... In Kuvo. Yeah, <laughs> something cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we got a little bit chatty and we forgot to introduce to you our... We have two wonderful ladies uh, based in Mozambique, Colin Fletcher and Jasmine Howell, um, two consultants, trainers. Actually, they do a lot of things. I've met Colleen personally, I think it was two or three months ago. And I was, uh, you know, we had a very fascinating chat. And I told her, you know, immediately you need to come for a podcast because there are so many things to be discussed. So welcome, ladies, to Teachers Coffee. It's such a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. What a privilege. Thank you for having us. So uh, what's the temperature now? Is it scorching hot there? Well, the temperature is 45 degrees <laughs> oh <my laughs> with gosh. no reprieve from rain. So, yes, it's definitely one of those days where you want to be rolling in an swimming pool to stay sane. And I guess this is not normal, right? It might be a tropical country, but it's not normal uh, in the middle of November to have such a high temperature, right? No, I think um, we definitely usually have some days of reprieve with some beautiful rain that makes it all feel a little more bearable. But this particular time, we've had about two weeks of 45 above 40 temperatures. So uh, it is abnormal for sure. Yeah. And it's pretty extreme. It's, you know, um, we are surrounded by people who, who grow their own crops, our subsistence farmers. And this is the planting season. Um, and it's really... That's the that's the downside of it all is that their crops are just being fried up in the rain, and uh, without the rain, so that's pretty pretty bad and sad. And because you you just know that rolling out into the rest of the summer, that has some dire effects on them. I guess all this is part of this is crazy climate change, and yeah. that affects mm -hmm. all of us, no matter where we live. Mm -hmm. But but getting back, I think one of you is um, British and the other is Canadian. So um, uh, we are very and you uh, the, the impression that I got after talking to Colleen is that she has become very Mozambican. You know, she has become <laughs> very, very, very local. So we are very interested. Uh, and even this sounds like a very cliche introductory question. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and what are you currently doing in Mozambique? Okay, well, that's exciting. So um, 
Right, so I'm Colleen Fletcher and I've been in Mozambique for 26 years. Um, originally actually came from South Africa and um, decided to come to Mozambique for two years and it's two, 26 years later that I'm still here. Uh, in that time, been involved in schools and education. Um, I was a school principal, a classroom teacher here. Uh, but after, and always, always looking for opportunities to contextualize the learning in a classroom to the context that we're in. That's always just been such an important factor. Um, and so really worked a lot on trying to see how we could actually connect with communities. I was working at an international school and as international students and teachers, we live in a bubble uh, and don't always understand or uh, appreciate the context we're in. So we really worked hard at that, as uh, sort of perforating that bubble and getting more contextual. And then during COVID actually, um, you know, I'll let, I'll let Jasmine speak a little bit more, but we sort of said, well, why don't we just try and do what we're really passionate about full time, which is taking learning outside of the classroom. Yeah, yeah so um, I'm Jasmine Howell. I'm from Canada originally, but have been in Mozambique now for about six years. Um, I'm also a classroom teacher. That's where my career started, teaching in public and private schools in North America. Um, and I also taught here in Southern Africa as well. I was really involved in performing arts. My first my first degree is in performing arts, and I was really involved in looking at community engagement projects through the arts. And then when I started living in Mozambique and doing some volunteer programs, as Colleen said, you know, as we all did, have maybe a little extra time during COVID, we thought, why don't we turn what we're incredibly passionate about into a full-time job? And so we started our business virtually, not being in the same country. Uh, and we've been going ever since. And we're fortunate we work under a very large umbrella of education. Um, so we do a lot of research and monitoring and evaluating. For whatever reason, both of us you know, have worked in the formal classroom. And I think now we can safely say we enjoy um, writing reports a lot more now than maybe we did in the <laughs> classroom setting. I don't know why that is. Um, so we do different educational baseline reports. Um, and roadmaps for companies. We work on different social and environmental awareness programs. We work with different corporate companies on their corporate social responsibility. So looking at their different mission and values and looking how this can really be contextualized to the communities that they're working at and the communities that they're living in and then implementing and monitoring those different programs. Um, one example that we've just wrapped up is working with Coca-Cola, uh, working with women who collect PET plastic and working with them on micro business and leadership skills and health and safety skills, but larger than that, really getting them to understand the incredible impact that they're making locally and globally on recycling efforts and you know the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So really building that pride and confidence in what they're doing um, is really something that we're both passionate about. And then I'll let Colleen speak to kind of our other leg of our company. Yeah, so the other pillars, so Jasmine spoke about sort of two of the pillars um, of what we do, which is research and monitoring, and then the social and environmental engagement. Um, and then the third pillar is, is probably what we're going to talk about more here today, which is our um, working with educational institutions, both public and private. Um, mm. And what that is, is, is working with teachers, working with students on either curriculum design, but mostly on connecting curriculum authentically to, to where teachers are at. 
Um, and while we do a lot of work here in Mozambique on that, we have also traveled further afar um, mm -hmm. to work with teachers um, in Uzbekistan as well, which was really wonderful. It was nice and cool there. Okay, <laughs> yeah. um, but really working on, on curriculum design and, and, like I said, connecting what one is learning in the classroom to really what the big issues are outside of the classroom and seeing um, a rooted. So always looking at those UN SDGs, making them real. We really do ask ourselves questions. If we aren't teaching kids the real value and the real importance of those UN SDGs, um, you know, then, then we're missing a big part of, of what's important in education. And then super important is looking at indigenous knowledge systems. So looking at what the systems are, um, what knowledge is around where we work and incorporating that in the education programs that we do. Yeah, using community voices, just being contextual about the learning. So that's really what, what we do here. And what we find is, I know we, you know, we spoke more about, George, about English language learning, is that English language learning in a Portuguese country, we'll go into the context of Mozambique shortly, but English language learning comes in through all these pillars. Is there's always a request, mostly from adults, um, to learn to speak English. Uh, and that has its own challenges in, in the context of where we live. Absolutely. We'll get to this specific question in a minute because I want you to elaborate more on this and I will try to steer the conversation so we can actually answer very specific questions that I think our listeners are very curious to find out. Uh, as you mentioned, Mozambique is a Portuguese-speaking country. That's the native language there and the official language. But before that, Zina, would you like to maybe... Yeah. Do you have another I question, think... I think? Yes, yes. I think people would like to know, I don't know, let's start off with the basics. How is education, what's the, the structure of the education system in Mozambique? Mm -hmm. Is it essential for people to get educated? Is there access to education for most students in the country? Right. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. And I think before kind of jumping into those two questions, just for those listeners who may not be familiar with Mozambique, um, I just want to give a really brief context to the country itself because it gives some important um, guidance to, to why things are the way they are with given the education situation. So, um, you know, we're located in Southern Africa on the East Coast. Mozambique is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual and multi-religious country. Uh, but it's a very young country. So Mozambique gained independence from the Portuguese only in 1975 uh, and then entered into a state of civil war until 1992. So it's it's a young country. It's a young population, a population of about 33 million. And over half of that is actually women. Um, so, you know, Mozambique is one of the countries with the lowest human development index. And, and Mozambique is working against a lot of various challenges that that contribute to a complex education system um, and complex education structures. Um, but with all that being said, Mozambique and, and Mozambicans are, are incredibly resilient and hardworking and motivated. And, and Mozambique is, is incredibly dynamic yeah. and the energy here is, is almost palpable. It's quite an incredible place to be. Uh, and I would encourage anyone to come and visit Mozambique. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. But in terms of the education structure, it is similar to to other countries. So, you know, we have the preschool to secondary school education. Uh, education is compulsory up to grade six. 
Um, and then following that standard education, we do have opportunities for adult education. So those are for learners who didn't get to complete their standard education, maybe in the, you know, within the normal um, five to 18 year range. So those are older adult educators. And then we have our teacher training um, subsystem and vocational education and higher education. And vocational education is, is becoming very popular in Mozambique. We have quite a lot of foreign investment. Um, and again, just the dynamic nature of Mozambique is really demanding a lot of those specific school sets, sorry, skill sets. And then to answer your question, um, you know, is it essential for people to get educated? I think that's an interesting question. And I think it's, it's one that we need to kind of ask ourselves and challenge, well, what is education? Uh, what does that mean? What does learning mean? And what does learning look like? Because here in Mozambique, one in 10 people are engaged in informal work, um, so unregulated work. And so a lot of this work could be subsistence farming, as Colleen mentioned earlier, um, creating crafts and selling them, seasonal employment in the agricultural sector, um, and then selling goods on the side of the road, as well as fishing. And so when we ask that question or answer that question for maybe a more global north perspective and we think about what is education in a more traditional or formal sense well this type of informal work doesn't require that formal education or what we might know education to be but what it is using is this incredible indigenous knowledge that's existing and it's this knowledge that's being passed down through generations and that in itself is a beautiful type of education that we're really passionate about fostering and leveraging and prioritizing um, so those people in the informal sector will not necessarily have that formal education and individuals who want to work in more formal settings will. Um, but Colleen and I are, are passionate about kind of questioning ourselves, well, what lens are we looking through education? And, and coming from Canada myself, uh, living and working in Mozambique really challenged me to ask myself, um, what, what do I mean by education? What does education look like different places? And, and really reimagine what education can be. So, so, Gina, you said, you know, um, is it essential to, to get educated? And, and using what, what Jasmine has just spoken about, we all need to be educated in some form or another to survive. But it's it's questioning what is, what is that? Is it, is it formal? Is it Indigenous? Is it is it informal? But if we look at the formal education um, situation here, do, do all people have access to education? No, they don't. And so this is why there's such a heavy reliance on other ways of learning and other ways of knowing, um, which we need to embrace and actually and, and see how we can actually integrate that into moving forward in education programs. So access to education continues to be a huge challenge. The average class size here in primary schools is 72 children to one teacher. Oh, my and God. Many, yeah. many, many rooms non-existent so you'll have a teacher sitting under a tree with 72 kids and of those 72 children there might be three or four textbooks there might be a handful of pencils so the closer you get to the cities the more opportunity there are the more formal structures there are the more classrooms there are the more materials there are because there's probably also more opportunity for parents to have work near the cities but the majority of Mozambique is rural and so for many, many children, they have absolutely no access to get to the closest school, or even when they do, it's operating at way, way over capacity. Um, and to give you an example, we are only 48 kilometers north of the city. We live on a, on a little 
small a, a little farm and we're in a rural area we're just 48 kilometers outside the capital of the city and in our community um the principal of the local little primary school here who by the way has four classrooms and 1400 students what four and 1000 mm-hmm. so how oh, they do God. it how they do it is that teachers run three sessions a day so his teachers run a session from six in the morning till 10 then from 10 until two And then from two until six, the same teacher is doing twelve hours. When's prep time? <laughs> Never mind food time and sleeping time. But he did it. He did a little survey and he walked around in the community here and realized that he there were about fifty-two little kids who should be in grade one that weren't going to school because it's just too far to walk mm-hmm. to the school that he has, which is already operating at beyond capacity. Um, and so we're in the process. We're just very fortunate to be engaged with the community. We're in the process of building a grade one classroom that is sort of deeper in the community, and which will serve as a satellite room to his little school, just so that those grade ones can get a chance of getting into school. So you know that question is: Is education essential? Yes, it is. But there's so many alternative ways of learning that have to happen because they don't have access to that formal education. Um, but there's a will. Everyone wants to be at school. Mm-hmm. Teachers want to teach, so it, it's a it's complex. <laughs> um, I would like to thank you first of all for this overview because these are pictures that you have described and situations that you know I, I hate using this word, but you know to us that belong to a more Western type of life, mm-hmm. they seem too distant. But at the same time, they reflect reality because what is happening in Mozambique? This is not the only country in the world that these things Definitely are happening. Not. So. Uh, right now, I'm keeping two things. I'm keeping, you know, the words from Jasmine, palpable and vibrant, which means yeah. that there is a will of the people to get educated. And I, I, I say this, you know, from the perspective of a tourist, I would say, because I stayed there only for a couple of days. But it really surprised me. It was in the air how people really do want to get educated, irrespective of all these poor conditions. And this is something that we need to credit to them. It's it's absolutely praiseworthy because it's not happening in many other countries. So the mentality, the mindset is, yeah, I want my kid to be educated, even if he has to go to a classroom with another 1,000 kids or whatever. The second thing is that, you know, uh, for us, it creates a lot of awareness right now, what you have just said about... Uh, not the typical, uh, this re- reframing of education that you mentioned, not the typical way we get educated in another part of the world, but the experiential education, which is also extremely helpful because sometimes you have the theoretical, but you see that life, you know, really kicks you, punches you in the stomach with completely <laughs> different reality. Yes. Mm-hmm. And on that, uh, at the end of the day, even if you do have all the skills, they might be redundant in a context like that, that you need other skills, streetwise skills, if I'm allowed to say, uh, mm-hmm. that get you through survival. And this is also education. And I think this is this is amazing. Uh, now, to be more specific and a little bit more boring, you know. Uh, <laughs> Not boring. Yeah. Uh, bo- boring because my question, I think, is very boring. Where is Where does English fit as a subject in this context? Because I'm talking about English as a lingua franca. I'm talking about a country that English is not the official language. And uh, obviously now so many initiatives from abroad come to your country. So you may need English in order to, to communicate the people there. So where does English fit as a subject, 
as a prospect, as a skill, if you like. Uh, what about this part of education? Yeah, and George, I, you mentioned earlier, you know, Mozambique, our official language here is Portuguese, but actually only 17% of the population have that as their mother tongue. Mm -hmm. So here in Mozambique, there's 16 identified, um, and I say that because there's so many more that are not identified, 16 indigenous languages across the country that are spoken. Um, and of course, that's going to present challenges when the language that school is taught in is Portuguese. Um, so Mozambique has supported uh, these different languages and implemented bilingual education in different parts of Mozambique. So that's teaching in the local language and Portuguese. So this isn't even considering English on the radar. You know, it's it's really providing that essential education in a language that makes sense contextually. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the time of independence back in 75, you know, there was an illiteracy rate of 93 percent. And in 2017, it was seen that about 39 percent of Mozambicans still can't read or write. And of course, this affects women more. This isn't a new story. Um, and so we also recognize that a lot of these people that grew up during these war times are really the ones that are desiring uh, English the most. And there's the greatest needs amongst these adult learners. Uh, because in schools, as, as it is now, in the cities particularly, um, English is not mandated to be taught, but it is taught in some places, in some schools, from grade seven onwards. Um, and, and as you've said, you know, more and more people are wanting to learn English and, and seeing that they want to get jobs that they can speak English in, but there's not necessarily those jobs to support that quite yet. Um, so the majority of English teaching is happening in the capital city of Maputo, which, as Colleen mentioned, we're 48 kilometers outside of. Yeah. You know, I think just just adding to that a little is because of the um, that the, the focus really I, I wouldn't say the focus is on adult English learning. Obviously, um, high school students are recognizing that as tourism picks up in this country, um, as other foreign investment comes, they recognize that that being able to speak English gives them a, a leg up actually when they're applying for yeah. jobs. So um, they are seeking it. Students, high school students are constantly seeking English and young adults and even the older adults are constantly seeking opportunities to learn to speak English. Now we have two, two sort of gaps here. Um, the one is that the secondary school or young adults who are literate, who have had a secondary school and are looking for for English language learning are finding opportunities at little private colleges or private classes. Um, we actually have a young a young man with us here who's taking English classes about 20 kilometers away at a mm -hmm. private college. And um, Jasmine, you, you explain what he's learning yeah. looks like. It's really so he attends English classes um, once a week, he goes into the formal classroom setting. Um, and in that class, they copy down on their page a passage of English. And, you know, they go over key vocabulary and different important verbs. And then over the next week, while they're not at school, they'll get text messages sent to them. And the text messages will have a question based on the English passage that they have copied down at the class. And they're responsible to answer the questions um, and copy it down on their page and bring that to the next session. So I think it's a really another beautiful example of how different technologies are being used in Mozambique, because as Colleen said, um, most people have access to Internet. Most people have access to a telephone. So it's yeah. really, um, mm -hmm. really utilizing 
those different tools and making uh, learning English very accessible um, because often a lot of these different places that English is being taught is also quite far away. So making it only once a week makes it a little bit more doable as well. And then the other gap that we have is that you've got young adults um, and older adults who, who are, are illiterate or have very low levels of literacy who want to learn to speak English. And that's where Jasmine and I have done some direct work mm -hmm. um, with women where it's, you, you, they're wanting to learn to speak English, but they cannot read and write. So that's a massive, uh, a massive challenge there as well. But what is interesting, it forced us to question, the, question ourselves is what does literacy actually mean? Because this particular group of women we were working with just down the road here in a place called Maraquen, um, many of them couldn't read and write. But all of them had smartphones and were very happy using WhatsApp and using voice notes. And were actually sharing knowledge and accessing information through YouTube and voice notes. And so there's that other gap for adults who want to learn to speak English, but don't have the literacy. But have the digital literacy, sorry to yeah, intervene, the, exactly, digital literacy. the digital literacy. So, so that was a was an interesting project that we did get into, uh, that we did do is... is looking at materials where you don't have any words, <laughs> but not having it at a kindergarten or, or younger primary level, so still addressing adults around adult issues. And most of these women actually wanted to learn to speak English so that they could enter the tourism business or be able to speak to tourists who were coming to visit the farm that they were working on. Um, so it had to be very specific to their work environment but also take into account, into account that they can't read and write in their own language. Interesting. So, I mean, um, it's, it's what I found very interesting is that, that there's a digital illiteracy, but not the actual literacy or language literacy or <laughs> just reading, right? And that's crazy, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it can be a great tool because I wanted to ask you about the teachers, the English teachers, um, how how do they work? If there is 16, you mentioned different yeah. indigenous languages, and then there's <laughs> also Portuguese, and then some people also don't know how to read and write. How, how can a teacher step in and kind of teach a new, an extra language? Yes, with great difficulty, <laughs> with great difficulty, with a lot of panache and a lot of will. Um, I think it's a, unfortunately, it is a, it's a challenge that could very easily turn into a downward spiral where I explained the situation where teachers are putting in a 12-hour day and there's very little time to do anything more than the basic, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, as we used to call it. Um, there, there's not much time for their own learning there's not much time for their own preparation. So unfortunately, particularly the further north you go or the further away from cities you go is that there are many teachers who themselves have a very low level of English and then they're trying their very best to be teaching English on. So um, the, the levels are questionable in certain areas, um, despite the will. But then we've also seen pockets of people being really intuitive and, um, and using what they do have, such as digital literacy, all these private colleges popping up. We also see that there is a massive gap here for teaching teachers how to teach English in a very different way. Um, 
I think I think it's got to start there. I think it's got to start with capacity building of the English teachers themselves and their own confidence in English themselves. The big question is, are you going to learn to speak English if you don't need it? So the need is where tourism is. The need is where jobs are. And so it's very difficult for the government to also say, well, we're mandating English now across the country because there isn't the need for that mm -hmm. everywhere. So it pops up in pockets where there seems to be a need, but there's often not the mm -hmm. capacity to support that need. Absolutely, Colin. And I think um, here you are raising the issue in between, you know, what we call demand and need and at the same time how do you implement this within a realistic context which is also meaningful for the people who are going to receive it because yeah obviously if you for example offer right now for free uh, I don't know uh, 50 or 60 hour grammar course you know in Mozambique about the usage of this or the other tense or the conditionals nobody would be interested but if you offer for example the same amount of hours for, I don't know, a hotels and catering, let's say, course or right. something that the others can get and, you know, use the other day, then automatically it becomes very meaningful. And of course, then we're getting into syllabus discussion, curriculum yeah. discussion and, you know, so technical things that sometimes, you know, they cause some conflict because there are people who want to uh, offer their services. There might be resources, by the way, you know, in order to uh, promote our sponsor here, Express Publishing. For example, we have a wonderful series of career paths that uh, they have been offered to all the teachers of the world. So to yeah. offer meaningful, practical courses for every single profession. So sometimes what I'm trying to say, the resources and the people are there, but if the project is not meaningful for the people who are going to receive it, then this ends up as like a, a redundant activity. Yeah, However, however, from what I know and what you have told me, and I think this is very much connected to what Zina asked you, but I want to make it more specific. You told me that you have developed, which is really fascinating, um, a method or sufficient content for or a course for teaching English to completely illiterate people. And my question as a teacher is, how do you do this? How do you start <laughs> when you enter a class of adults that no one can read and write? Yeah. Well, I think it helps that both of us were ex-drama teachers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want anyone to be filming me. Well, maybe we teach some of these English classes, but we definitely do have fun. Uh, and I think that whole relevance piece that we're speaking of is incredibly important because I think all of us can attest to the fact that no one wants to sit through a class or a workshop that they don't see the relevance in and they don't um, identify as something that is meaningful to them and contextually appropriate. So Colleen and I are really dedicated to in any of our workshops or any of work that we're doing, if it's English classes or otherwise, and just like in a classroom, you know, you have a range of learners with different levels and abilities and interests and coming from different contexts. Um, so we really rely a lot on, on visuals and photographs and symbols um, and, as Colleen said, acting things out and getting everybody involved. Um, so, for example, you know, we did one of these introduction to English courses working with um, a group of chili planters. And I don't know, for any of the listeners there who have Nando's uh, Piri Piri hot sauce, we actually <laughs> grow chili, the bird eye chili here in Mozambique. Um, so it's not far from where we live. It's about 10 kilometers. So we were working with staff who worked at this farm. 
And um, they were interested in learning English, particularly to communicate with visitors and tourists that were going to come and be visiting their farm. Um, so again, a wide variety of literacy levels and ages um, in this particular workplace. So we needed to create something that was first appropriate to the different levels and ages, but also contextually appropriate to their work and they, where they would be um, using English and interacting with English. And, you know, in the past, what we were finding when we were looking for different resources was that the contextually appropriate piece was missing. So we would have an English textbook or workbook that said, I am going to the post office. Well, here in Mozambique, we don't have any post office. So that particular, <laughs> <laughs> that particular vocabulary isn't relatable um, and it's not very meaningful. And more than that, in the pictures on these books, it would be someone from a very culturally different context. Um, so our learners weren't seeing that relevance piece. They weren't feeling acknowledged in those different learning materials. Um, and again, I think that's speaking to that global North perspective and where a lot of our different training materials are coming from. So um, we worked really hard to create something that was inspired by our students and inspired by the setting of their workplace at the chili farm so we would you know use different pictures photographs and photographs of them doing different actions um, using different tools wearing different safety equipment um, discussing different weather patterns um, and you know that turned into a larger discussion about climate change as we've been talking about climate this morning um, so really making sure we have a combination of pictures and words and again um, lots Lots of drama games so that everyone we're working with felt really comfortable um, laughing at each other and laughing at themselves um, to kind of break that anxiety around learning a foreign language. But I think it's also um, one needs to acknowledge that it's going to take much longer mm -hmm. um, and one has to be patient and in a one hour session if we can all comfortably say um, hello my name is Colleen and I live in Boboli um, and I have lived here for 26 years. Those were like the first three things, you know, mm -hmm. that might take two or three lessons to get to that. And then we built up phrases rather than looking at any grammatical structure. We built up phrases using photographs, using role play. And then these phrases could then be used as a mix and match to have a little conversation. So they would learn, say, five to ten phrases, and then they could create a mix and match. Um, and we, we would always have half the class were visiting tourists and the other half were farm workers. And you, and you film them all and you show photographs mm -hmm. afterwards and play it back. And the Mozambicans have an incredible <laughs> sense of humor. So they love seeing themselves. They love laughing at and themselves. And putting on a performance. Oh, yeah. performing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it takes a lot longer. And I think, but it's very rewarding. Yeah. And I think too, for, for Colleen and myself and the preparation to create these materials, it took a lot of time for us as well. Um, you know, we have an education background, so growing chilies is not something uh, that we're fluent <laughs> in. And so for us, we had to do a lot of homework and a lot of prep work in order for us to understand the seasons, the seasons and the systems and tools that they were using so that we could ensure that it was contextually appropriate yeah. Um, to to you know the environment that they're living in and working in. They had a lot of fun teaching us the Shangana words as well. Yeah, yeah, yes, a lot of sharing of knowledge and language happening for sure all the time. Wow, I mean, all, all all the activities that you have described actually make a lot of sense to me from the perspective of the teacher. But at the same time, 
the all these things portray the active teacher, the frontline teacher, the one who is not hidden just behind any kind of curriculum. And as I said before, somebody who is trying to use all his or her resources to make a lesson meaningful. So I would like to congratulate you because what you have just told me is simply amazing. And yeah. uh, good luck. And you don't have to give, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to give away any more of your secrets because uh, <laughs> yeah, that's we that's a really because <laughs> honestly, if you just think, I mean, that that isn't restricted to us here in Mozambique. No. If you think of kids who have learning difficulties, it doesn't matter, or even students in in other parts of the world who, for whatever reason, are struggling to read and write, whether it's a learning difficulty or have had their own struggle to access learning. Mm-hmm. I think many of these tools are so shareable. Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, students that are moving from a different context and learning English, they're not only learning the language, they're learning the context. So making sure that um, the different language tools and activities that you're using are also acknowledging the different contexts where they may come from are really going to support um, and and help their, their learning in that way. Absolutely. Gina, are you ready for the final question of this podcast? The final roast <laughs> question this, of today's episode. Yeah. Um, I think I got inspired from basically our conversation to ask you like go a bit more in depth on basically what you've already been talking about. So I want to ask you each to tell me the most difficult or challenging time you've had in the classroom. Um, And maybe if there was a specific word that you had to teach, which was completely unrelatable and how you came about it, or maybe another incident. Most difficult. (laughs) Yeah. I think for me, um, and I refer to the 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 chili workers, is is probably when when they were ready to talk about tenses and they wanted to actually say that you know they had planted the seeds last month, mm-hmm. and trying to not fall into that trap of going into a grammar lesson, but mm-hmm. trying to teach tenses and then but what that does is it also questions you what is the purpose of their learning they want to communicate with 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 tourists how precious do we have to be about the correct grammar and I know there's a lot of teachers that are going to be listening to this podcast who are going (laughs) you know (laughs) their hairs are standing up on the back of their necks but Mm -hmm. I think you've got to ask yourself in the context how precious do we have to be about the grammar here or is it more about being able to communicate an idea um at the same time, at the same time, knowing that these these are learners who want to stretch their own knowledge and feel confident to stretch. So I think that has that's been the, you know, if I think about that, it's sort mm-hmm. of how far do you push to get it correct, uh, to correctly speak, you know, in, in the different tenses, and how far do you just go, well, you know, you've you've mm-hmm. put the point across mm-hmm. clearly. That's probably one of mine. <laughs> I and think that's for me, out of curiosity. No, go ahead, Gina. Do you translate anything in Portuguese or how? Yes. Or is- yes. But you see, we have access to tools, <laughs> so, technology tools, and we do have teachers um, who are multilingual that we work through as well so that we don't lose the nuances. Um, 
and and we always start lessons with sing, singing, song and dance. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we did is we took traditional songs and actually put English words to yeah. it. Um, mm -hmm. We always have teachers with us who are multilingual. In the local languages the as local, well. Yeah. 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 What's your I think for me, um, teaching English has has um, just made me realize how confusing English is. Um, and I'm often stumped by questions from students saying, well, why is it this way? And I don't really have a good answer for them. <laughs> and I just say, I'm sorry, I don't know why. Um, but for example, you know, someone asked me the other day, uh, we had learned the word cow, as in the animal. Um, and then they asked me, well, I, I'd like to know what the word coward means, because I see that there's cow in it. So is it something to do with a cow? Um, and so I, I, you know, was trying to find an appropriate way to teach the word coward. And uh, for me, again, I, I guess it's my ex drama um, coming out, but I decided to do a very elaborate skit on what being a coward could be. And, <laughs> you know, going out into the bush and seeing a snake and the different actions you would do. Um, and I just walked away from that experience thinking, you know, the English language is incredibly <laughs> complex um, and teaching English is incredibly complex. Um, and to just, I think, have patience with ourselves as teachers and patience with our students and then above all laughter and finding the joy and the humor in it all. Actually, I see a lot of positive feelings there. You know, I see a lot of innovation. I see a lot of curiosity. I see a lot of love of learning. And and I think this is the embodiment of what a teacher should be. So thank you very much for sharing all these experiences uh, with us, Gina. I think we'll have another little gem here as an episode, and Absolutely. we got a, <laughs> we got um, a really good idea of what Mozambique and education in Mozambique is all about through you. So thank you again for doing this for us. Thank you so much. And we hope to see you visit us in Mozambique yes. sometime. Maybe when it's not forty-five degrees. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Absolutely. I'd be happy to come see everything that you guys do. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Be wonderful. And sorry, I would just love to end with just a little piece of Mozambique to share with everyone. Um, so, you know, in, in one of the local languages here, Shangan, to say thank you, we say Kalimambo. So I'd like to end it just saying Kalimambo Kali to you both. Oh, that's so Kali wonderful. Kalimambo. Kalimambo to all of you. Until next time. Thank you. Okay, next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.